All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm the minister here at Alliance Christian Church. Why don't we go to God in prayer? Father God, we thank you so much for this church that you've given us. We thank you that you give us the chance to gather together, to serve together, to read your word together. And I just ask that you would soften our hearts today as we dive into your scripture. That you would help encourage us and spur us on to, uh, to continue to love one another and to live out your scriptures. God, I ask that you would be with me, that you would make my words clear and concise, that you would help your word flow through me so that your message would be understood. We pray all of these things in the name of your son, Jesus. And the church said, Amen. all right. So over the next several weeks, about three months, we're going to be going through the book of Matthew in a series we're calling Kingdom. And so I want us to dive in today. We've, we've did our background. We're finally getting ready to jump into Matthew chapter 1. One of the things that I really wanted to do this series is give you all an opportunity to really dive in and really engage with Scripture. And so I've got, if you go into the back, if you see I've got some of those little handouts, um, that's the full text of what we're going to be reading today. Next week I plan on printing the full book of Matthew. It's in a large print. Um, I know it seems like the font in Bibles is getting smaller and smaller every year, so I've got a larger print, um, and I've also got it printed on one-sided, so there's plenty of room to circle, highlight, take notes, um, do all those sorts of things, because not everybody likes to write up in their Bible. Some people like to keep their Bibles clean, and so um, that's a resource for you there to be able to circle, highlight, make notes, and all of that, and you don't have to feel guilty about scribbling all over it because it's printed out. Um, we also have our YouVersion Bible event uh, that I've been doing that you can follow along with what we're reading. We also have an app um, that you can, you can download, and it's got the text of what we're going to read there today. So, um, and obviously we have Bibles in the back, so you've got any way you want you can engage with Scripture. Um, and one other note I wanted to point out about that on those little handouts, uh, you'll notice it's a different Bible translation. Uh, I've been using the NIV. This is a different reason for that is, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but most of your English Bibles are actually copyright protected. So like the NIV, the ESV, you can't actually just print those out without paying a fee. And so this is a translation that is, is copyright free. They allow churches to uh, print and distribute freely without paying the royalties and all of that. They have that built into their copyright. So that's why I'm using that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a cost thing, uh, but it's a, very, it's a very easy to read translation. It really, really similar to the NIV ESV. And so with all of that, I would love if, however you're engaging with Scripture today, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Very first book in the New Testament. It says, this is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And th this is one of those passages of scripture where if you're reading through the Bible, especially if you're on, if you're doing, if anybody's still doing their Bible in a year plan, you get to this point and you've made it all the way through the Old Testament and you finally get to Matthew and 
I'll be completely honest, most of us are probably on skim mode at this point. We get here and we're like, this is the genealogy. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Ammonite, Jehoshaphat, okay, 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 verse 8, let's get to the good stuff, right? Anybody guilty of doing that? You get through all those names, and you're trying to sound them all out, and you're like, all right, I, I just want to skip over, this is just an intro, we can skip over this part. Don't do that. Because I want you to actually appreciate what sort of a statement Matthew is, is making here. Because in our culture, this is probably not the best way to start a book. A big, long list of Jewish names that no one can pronounce. But I want you to put yourself in the mind of somebody who is a, is a first century Jew who has never heard of Jesus Christ and is reading this for the very first time. And you just have to trust me, the fact that they would have read that very first verse, and in their culture, in their time, in their context, their minds would have been blown. Because in that one verse alone, Matthew is already making a huge claim about Jesus. The first line, this is the record of the genealogy. In, in the original text, what it literally says is, this is the book of Genesis of Jesus Christ. It's in, it's in the Greek there. And if you remember, if you were here in October when we did our, our fingerprint series, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And it it really frustrates me that our English Bibles really don't draw out the fact that those are the exact same words. In the original, that would have said, this is the book of the Genesis of the heavens and the earth. You turn to Matthew. This is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And so, right off the bat, Matthew's readers would have stopped right there and said, okay, He's calling back to the very first couple of chapters of the Bible. He's calling back to when God made everything new. And so they would have read that. Whatever this Matthew guy is about to say, this better be good. It would be like if I started off my sermon and I stood up here and said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. It was that famous of a phrase. Your mind would have instantly on what I was referencing and gone to that place. And then the very next line, this is the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. We take it for granted the fact that Christ is not Jesus' last name. They didn't have last names there. Christ, or in the Hebrew, Messiah, literally means anointed one. That's how you talk about a king. So the first three words here, the book of Genesis of Jesus, the anointed king. That's what their mind would have seen. The son of David. This is calling us back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're talking about the beginnings. We're talking about Jesus being anointed. And then Matthew says, this guy is the son of David. And they instantly would have gone back to 2 Samuel 7. 
and the promise that God made to David. 2 Samuel 7.12, God says to David, When the time comes for you to die, I will raise up your descendant, one of your own sons, to succeed you. And I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will make his dynasty permanent. So he's already making some big claims here. And then he says, the son of Abraham. And the original reader is already in the mind of, okay, we're talking about covenants here. We're talking about deals with God. And this one here from Genesis 17, I think, would have been the one that really came to mind. Where God says to Abraham, I will make you extremely fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will descend from you. So don't miss that. This is a big deal. And this list of names here is a big deal. He makes this list of names, list of lineage from Abraham all the way down to Jesus. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. I want to make a couple of observations about this list of names from verse 2 all the way down to 17. First thing I want to note, and hopefully you will notice, is that starting in verse 6, David the king, all the way down to verse 12, every single name on that list is a king of Judah. This is important because we're talking about Jesus' legal lineage. Not his biological lineage, because Joseph, this line goes down to Joseph. Joseph was not his actual biological father. But in terms of legality, in terms of inheritance, in terms of being, having the right to be called Messiah, it's a big deal. And so not only is Joseph descended from David, but he's specifically descended directly through the line of the kings. And so if anybody is going to have this kind of a claim, remember, David had multiple kids. You could be descended from David on some wonky part of the family tree way over here. That's not a big deal. We're talking 28 generations ago. You can, pretty much anybody could be descended from David. But to be descended straight through the line of kings, that's a big deal. And then I want you to notice verse 17. He says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. You've all got homework this week. You don't actually have to do it, but I encourage you, Sit down with your Bibles and take the time to trace every single one of those names that you can back to where they belong in the Old Testament. It's actually really fun. It takes a long time because there's a lot of flipping. You've got to hold your finger here and go back 
and find this person, okay, they're here, maybe write a little note, okay, this is from Genesis, such and such, and go back and forth. It can be done. You can get all the way to, if I remember right, all the way to Zerubbabel before you, you lose names because there's a gap between the Old Testament and New Testament. But if you do that, one thing you will notice when Matthew says there are 14 generations, there's not actually 14. You guys know that? If you go back in the Old Testament, what you will find is that there are actually several kings in there who get skipped by Matthew. It's actually more than 14. I want to assure you that that's not an accident, that's not a mistake. Think about it. What was Matthew's profession? He was a tax collector. His entire livelihood depended on his ability to count and to keep track of inheritances. I'm pretty sure he, if he skipped a name, he did it on purpose. So we have to think about that culture, that audience. The number 14 in, in Jewish culture is a very important, very symbolic number. They were really big on numbers having meaning and symbolism. And 14 is this really on-purpose number that symbolizes completeness. And Matthew's audience, the people who were reading this for the first time, and I need you to hear this, because you and I, when we see that Matthew tells us there's 14, but we go back and we count there's actually like 18, we get bothered by that. We start to think, oh, he's trying to pull a fast one on us. Matthew's audience, the people he was writing to, wouldn't have batted an eye. That wouldn't have bothered them one bit. They knew what he was going for. They knew the point he was trying to make. They knew the picture he was trying to paint for them. They probably knew that, no, oh, there's actually 18 kings here. They didn't care. And we talked about it a couple weeks ago. Matthew's not going for a perfect uh, timeline. He's not going for a perfect chronology. He's trying to paint you this broad picture and do something way bigger than that. He's trying to prove a point is what he's doing. So don't get, don't get caught up in the nitty-gritty of the numbers, and, and let's look at what he's actually trying to show us. He's drawing out a pattern that we might not recognize. He's using that number 14, which symbolizes completeness, to do it. There's a complete whole set of generations where there is no king from Abraham to David. And so he's highlighting that's an era of no king. And then we get a complete era, 14 generations, a complete set where there is a king. And then you go from the deportation to Babylon all the way to Jesus. What is that again? That's another complete era, a complete set of generations with no king. He's drawing out that pattern that you and I probably wouldn't have noticed just reading through this, and Matthew is making that clear for us. So what's the pattern? No king, king, no king, what comes next? And we get Jesus. And the, other, the, the last thing I want you to notice about this list of names, especially in verses 2 through 6 and 7, Matthew includes several women in there. 
And that wasn't something that people did back then. Right, wrong, or indifferent. It's just a cultural difference. My wife and I, we did our, our genealogy a while back, and so we went back on her side and my side, and we tracked through her parents and my parents and then grandparents. And you see, every time you've got a parent and a, a mother and a father, and each mother and father has a mother and a father, and so your family tree can get rather wide. That's not the way they did it back then. It was a straight line shot through the fathers. And so if Matthew is including women in this genealogy, again, it's not an accident, it's not just a fluke, it's on purpose to prove a point. I think we should understand that if if he's going outside the bounds that's normal, we should pay attention to that. Why is he including these women in here? And I think it has a lot to do with what he says next in verse 18. He says, now, the birth of Jesus Christ happened this way. While his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband-to-be, was a righteous man, and because he did not want to disgrace her, he intended to divorce her privately. When he had contemplated this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Because the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, because he will save the people from their sins. This all happened so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did what the angel of the Lord told him. He took his wife. But he did not have marital relations with her until she gave birth to a son whom she named Jesus. I think everybody here in this room, again, talking about things we take for granted, I think we kind of take for granted the fact that Matthew is claiming here that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived. And how big of a deal that is. You and I take it on face value. But imagine you're living at the time when Matthew is writing this. Again, you've never heard of this guy Jesus before, and you read that. Realistically, how likely is it that you're going to believe that? Like, if somebody came into our church and made that claim today, right now, If somebody came in and said, I'm pregnant, I'm engaged, but I've never been with a man before, are you going to believe her? You're going to have questions at least. And and, and this is a a family-friendly sermon and message, but like, it's not like the way babies were made has changed over the past several centuries. It would have been just as strange to them as a lot of deniers of the faith think it is today. Think about how people thought about this story. Think about the kinds of nasty rumors that would have been spread around about Mary. That's something we don't think about, is it? Do you think that everybody who heard this story just believed it? No, there were probably nasty, awful rumors being spread around about her. And actually, we have historical evidence of those sorts of things. 
This is from a guy named Celsus. He was, he was writing close to the time when Matthew was writing his account of the gospel. And he was an, an anti-Christian. He was an opponent of Christianity. And he actually he wrote this and said this about Jesus. He says, he was born in a... Oh, my slide's not going. There we go. He said, he was born in a certain Jewish village of a poor woman of the country who gained her substance by spinning. That's a very insulting thing to say, by the way. He's basically saying about Mary, she couldn't even keep a man, so she had to make her own living spinning wool. Like, that's already, that's a biting thing to say. He says, she was turned out of doors by her husband, a carpenter by trade, because she was convicted of adultery. That after being driven away by her husband and wandering about for a time, she disgracefully gave birth to Jesus, an illegitimate child. Those are the kinds of nasty, awful, biting rumors that were spreading around about Mary, about Jesus in the first century. Makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, it doesn't make sense. You shouldn't be saying things like that, but... Can you understand? Yeah. Somebody's going to make that big of a claim. You're going to have opponents who are going to make those rumors. And so one really big thing that Matthew was trying to do here in chapter 1 is he's really trying to defend Jesus and to defend Mary against the naysayers. He's putting this case together so that all of those naysayers might have to think twice and retract their statements. So what does he do? The first thing he does in verse 18 is he brings in the witness of Joseph. He says, Joseph used to think that same thing. But then Joseph found out from God, from an angel of the Lord, that this was from the Holy Spirit, that this was a thing of God. He's basically saying, don't you think that if Mary was around, sleeping around on her husband, that Joseph would have up and left by now? But Joseph stayed. Joseph is still there. So it gives the naysayers thought. They go, well, I guess you're right. If anybody would have known what was going on, it would have been Joseph. And then if that's not enough, he brings in Scripture. He quotes Isaiah 7.14. Look, the virgin will conceive and give birth to the son. They will name him Emmanuel. He's telling all of these people, look, Isaiah said this hundreds of years ago that this was going to happen. You don't believe? You should have known it was going to happen. Isaiah told us it was going to happen. So why are you surprised about this? And then we get to the women in the genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba. Three out of the four of those women had a really bad reputation. And, and, and sometimes it was something they did. Sometimes it was just their life circumstances. But three out of the four of those women were involved in adultery. Remember Tamar, back in the book of Genesis, she was the one who dressed up like a prostitute and tricked her father-in-law into giving her a child. 
I, I still don't understand that story, but that's, what, that's who Tamar was. Rahab was also a prostitute in the book of Joshua. And the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba. If you don't know that story, she's the one who slept with David, the king, and then David went and had her husband sent into battle and put in a, a precarious situation and killed. Side note, if you think Bathsheba was innocent in that ordeal, go back and read 2 Samuel 11 again. She wasn't innocent. She was out on the rooftop in plain view. She came to David while her husband was a war hero and never said no. So, just saying, Bathsheba was not an innocent angel either. But the important thing is Matthew, when he was writing this, understood good and well that not everyone was going to believe that Mary was a virgin. I think he had accepted that fact. He says, I'm going to provide the evidence, but there's still going to be a good chunk of people that are going to read that and go, nah, couldn't be. And so he's talking to those people, the ones who refuse to believe the truth. And he's pointing out all of these women who had this bad reputation, who had been involved in adultery. And he's basically saying to the naysayers, how dare you? How dare you make the claim that Jesus is not eligible to be the Messiah because of something that you allegedly think his mother did? How dare you? He said, if you're going to make that claim, that Jesus can't be the king because you think his mother did some awful things, well then, you've got to go all the way back to David. You've got to go all the way back to Solomon. And they couldn't have been king either. You can't have it both ways. If you're going to apply that standard, you've got to apply it equally. That means David was unqualified to be king. The entire line of Judah is wrecked anyway, so what's the point? That's kind of what he's saying here. And so he's painting the naysayers into a corner where they really have no other choice but to admit that Jesus is the rightful Messiah. He's making a very compelling case. Matthew was a smart guy. The Spirit inspired him to write this really rock-solid case for Jesus. Make no mistake, Jesus is the King, the Anointed One, the One who was promised all throughout the Old Testament. And to the people in power at the time, the earthly kings, the ones who were actually rulers over physical kingdoms, they were terrified. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, at the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where's the one who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was alarmed, and all Jerusalem with him. After assembling the chief priests and experts in the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for it is written this way by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are in no way least among the rulers of Judah. 
For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So then Herod privately summoned the wise men and determined from them when the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, look carefully for the child. When you find him, inform me so that I can go and worship him as well. Spoiler alert. If you haven't read this story every Christmas, Herod had no intentions of worshiping Jesus. Herod was a bad dude. What's that? Oh. So, Herod was... Let me tell you a little bit about Herod. Herod was a puppet king installed by the Roman government. That's, That's what he was. Rome came in, took over everything, and installed him as a puppet to keep the peace in Judea. So even his earthly power as king was an illusion. And he knew it. He was well aware that he was caught in between the might of the masses, the people who could rebel at any moment, and the emperor of Rome who could have him taken out in an instant. He was in this very fragile situation as a king, as a ruler, where he knew that his power was pretty much non-existent, and he was giving the illusion of having power, and he was desperate to keep a hold of that illusion of power. In fact, when, when Herod died, get this, He actually had written in his will two things. Number one, he wrote in his will that upon his death, he wanted his firstborn son executed so that he wouldn't have to pass on the throne to him. I don't think he thought it all the way through, but that's actually what he had written. I want my firstborn son put to death so that I don't have to share the throne with my son, the rightful heir. And then... He actually had it written in his will that upon his death he wanted all of the elders of Jerusalem to be gathered up and executed in the town square. You know why? So that people would be crying during his funeral. This is the kind of psychopath that we're dealing here. By the way, nobody actually complied with either one of those orders because he was dead and nobody cared. But he still wrote it as an edict, expecting them to carry it out. And, and when he died, even his kids were like, I'm not doing that. That's, that's crazy. But, but that's the kind of deranged person we're dealing with here in Matthew 2. So all of a sudden, imagine how Herod is feeling when these magi come from the east and they're like, hey, we were looking up at the stars and we noticed that there's supposed to be a king born of Judea. Where, where can we find him? Not only that, Herod gathers all of the scribes and all of the smart people who are really, they know their Bible and they're like, he's like, well... Suppose there was going to be a Messiah who was going to kick me out of power. Where might he be born? And they they quote Micah 5 to him. This is Micah 5. I'm going to read the actual Old Testament verse here. He says, As for you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf one whose origins are in the distant past. 
So the Lord will hand the people of Israel over to their enemies until the time when the woman in labor gives birth. Then the rest of the king's countrymen will return to be reunited with the people of Israel. He will assume his post and shepherd the people by the Lord's strength, by the sovereign authority of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for at that time he will be honored even in the distant regions of the earth. You want to talk about a spot-on, on-the-nose prophecy? They probably read to him that entire passage, and Herod was like, uh-oh. The woman in labor gives birth, people coming from distant regions of the earth to work. I'm in trouble. And so he orders all of the children in that town, ages two and under, to be put to death. Because he thinks his power is threatened. And it was. Coming off the heels of doing a book on the book of Exodus, that smacks a lot of what Pharaoh did when his power was threatened, doesn't it? When he realized that he had no power, that his power was an illusion, and that God was in control, he lashed out. And I think for us, we need to understand that our battles are so much bigger than Herod and so much bigger than Pharaoh. I think we can read Herod and Pharaoh and all of these kings of the world. I think we can read them in our day as a stand-in for the king of this world, Satan. I think we can see the parallels with the way Satan operates. Ephesians 6.12. Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. We're not going up against a puppet king. We're not going up against whoever happens to be president at the time. We're not going up against whoever wants to be on TV in front of the podium reading from a little... That's small potatoes. We're in a spiritual battle. And I truly believe that spiritual warfare is a real thing. I don't think it's symbolic. I don't believe it's a metaphor. I don't think it's a poem that we read. That No, I really do believe that we are in a war right now, in the spiritual sense. And look at Matthew 2. Look at Exodus 1. Who does the enemy go after when he feels threatened? the kids. My wife is a secretary at the middle school. I do a lot of work with uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers and, and youth in Scotts Bluff. And I don't know what it is, 
But the past several months, both of us have had on multiple occasions, kids, 11, 12, 13 years old kids, coming up to us and saying things like, I don't think I have a purpose in this world. Telling us things like, I don't believe that anybody loves me. Telling us things like, what's the point in me being on this earth? These are kids. These are children who have never experienced God's grace. Children who don't know what it means to be created in the image of God and to serve a purpose higher than themselves, to know that they are made for a reason. These are kids with broken homes. One or more parents in prison. Kids who spend more time on the streets because they know that there's not going to be a loving family for them when they get back home. They know that there's not going to be enough food for them when they get back to their house. So they'd rather roam around and do whatever it is. Kids who are getting picked on in school. And look, it's not like when we were in school where you go to school and there's bullies and then you go home and the bullies are gone? These kids carry the bullies around with them in their pocket every single day. 24 hours a day. If we're going to be a part of this kingdom, if we are going to be servants to this king and fight the battles that this king is serving... We've got to understand the kingdoms that we're up against. When Herod saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became enraged, so he sent men to kill all the children in Bethlehem and throughout the surrounding region from the age of two and under. This was what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud wailing, Rachel weeping for her children, and she did not want to be comforted because they were gone. That's what we're up against. So when we do things like our VBS, things like our children's ministry, it's not just a fun little event where we sing songs. This is real. We have to be a light to our community and show the parents and children of this world that Jesus loves them. And here's the other important thing. Next week we're going to read Matthew 3 and Matthew 4. And I wanted to save this for next week, but I think this is important. When Satan can't get the kids, who's he go after next? The leaders. He went after Jesus himself in the desert. Trying to knock out a leader so that everything else will follow. Because he knows that if he can cut off the head, he can be more effective that way. And the only reason I bring that up and make such a big deal about that is because I really, truly do believe that here at ACC we're gaining some traction. We're, getting, we're finally getting to the point where we're not walking uphill in sand. And we're starting to make a difference. 
And I think Satan knows that and he's terrified. So I want you all to be ready. Because I think he's coming after us next. This isn't me trying to say that I'm like predicting the future or anything like that. This is just me understanding how the enemy operates. And mark my words, as soon as we start to be a light to the community, as soon as we start to gain traction, he's coming after you next. Maybe he already has. Maybe you're starting to feel doubts. Maybe you're starting to feel like you can't be a good enough. Christian, maybe you're starting to see pressure in your marriage or your finances because he does that. When Satan is afraid, he lashes out. And when that happens, I want you to smile. And I want you to recognize that your doubts, your insecurity, your marriage, your finances, whatever it is that's trying to make you stumble from the path is the act of a puppet king with an illusion of power who is desperately trying to knock you down because he's terrified, because he knows he's losing. Remember that. Take comfort in the fact that you are on the side of the true king, the one who actually holds the power. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you that you have sent the king into this world. God, I just ask that you would help us to serve the king, that you would help us to grow his kingdom. I ask this that you would give us the strength that we need so that we don't grow weary, that we don't grow tired. And God, I just ask that you would be with us as we fight our battles. We pray all of these things in the name of your son. And the church said, amen. At this time, I would love to sing a song of invitation. My guitar came out of tune, so give me a second.